Today on the WSJ Media Mix podcast, we speak with Antonio Garcia Martinez, former Facebook product manager and author of Chaos Monkeys, about his time in Silicon Valley and Facebook's changing business and culture. Welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast, bringing you interviews and analysis with people that matter in the fast-changing media business. Hello and welcome to the WSJ Media Mix podcast. I'm Stephen Perlberg. I'm joined as always by my colleague, Jack Marshall. Jack, how's it going? Hey, Steve. I'm good. So we talk a lot on this podcast about Facebook and the clout that it has in the media and advertising business. But now for the first time, we're really pleased to be joined by somebody who actually worked in the belly of the beast at Facebook, (laughs) uh, Antonio Garcia Martinez. Uh, he, he worked at Facebook for a few years ago. He was a product manager for, for their ad exchange, which we just learned from him, uh, shut down officially today, FBX. Right. Um, and he also wrote a book about his experience in Silicon Valley and at Facebook uh, called Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley. Antonio, thanks so much for uh, coming by. Thank you for having me. So let's for our, for our listeners, uh, just kind of give your, your background. You started on Wall Street. You worked in an ad startup. Move to Facebook. Let's like sort of get the the LinkedIn out of the way real quick, so you know, so we can kind of track. So your, the LinkedIn your was I was a failing physicist doing a PhD at Berkeley, and I read an absolute gateway drug of a book called Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis's first book, which I've hoped to emulate in my book, and uh, that got me hooked on uh, on finance. And I was in at, at Goldman right at the height of the credit crunch. Uh, bailed to tech when I knew that like the financial apocalypse was coming. Went to overfunded, really crappy startup A called Adgamy. Uh, where my co-founders founded a company, went through an incubator called the Y Combinator. It's kind of well-known. It's kind of one of the more prestigious sure. um, accelerators, I guess, really. Uh, ran for 10 months with a company, got sued, had every biblical plague in the book that hit startups, and then sold uh, to Twitter. And then in a drama recounted in the book, I actually bailed and went to Facebook, where I was the first targeting product manager. And what that means is I turn your data on Facebook into money for Facebook. And during the course of that, I built some of the stuff that you mentioned in my intro. Wait, so. so you mentioned uh, Liar's Poker. Were you kind of like all along the way planning on documenting all of this in like a tell-all book? Because that was sort of like the Michael Lewis approach. Yeah, in, in a slightly nefarious way, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, it was really kind of a long con that lasted <laughs> six years on the tech world of my being inside. I mean, I think the few talents I really have are in the writing field and everything else I sort of fake. And so I, I always knew... I always felt that what's going on in Silicon Valley then and, and still now is worth recording, and I think it's historically quite important. Well, it's so. interesting because there haven't real there has not really been a ton of um, of writing of that sort because I think tech startups are so buttoned up, and there's a, a culture. I mean, we know from our own reporting of, of, of privacy, and right. um, you know, not they're not necessarily the most talkative companies. So it's interesting that you kind of had that that tell all side of it but uh, you know i guess you were you were approaching it knowing all along that you wanted to tell these stories and i'm curious like you know some of the some of the things that you document in your book are the the you know the changing culture of silicon valley as you kind of moved through the industry what were some of the big takeaways that that you had that really like pinned down the Silicon Valley culture, maybe as made fun of in the show Silicon Valley or, or, right. you know, or, or otherwise? Well, I think th- what you said is very true. The culture is in transition, actually, right? I mean, I, I think one slightly dated view of Silicon Valley is that it's like the Steve Jobs version of Silicon Valley, right? The flower children, the dropouts, the hippies, right, who are technologically enabled, who want to save the world and are you know, fundamentally sort of altruistic and or whatever, right? 
what what's happened and what and we're kind of in the book you know silicon valley has stopped being the place where people who can't get jobs elsewhere go i mean that sort of used to be the case now it's like the first stop on like the privileged elite bus from the ivy league to whatever and like do not even stop by wall street on the way right if you have like a harvard mba now you're right. looking to right you get on the, the plane Ex- exactly you don't get a job at mckinsey or, or goldman necessarily anymore and so i think what it's brought to that culture is a people who are a lot less idealistic about it right they're just out to make a buck i mean who are we kidding right although they wear the sort of patina of altruism or whatever and then i think it's been a little bit more hard-edged um, a little bit more libertarian and less, you know, less flower child, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. Uh, one thing that you talk about in your book is that there's this perception, maybe naive perception, that Silicon Valley is a meritocracy. And in actuality, you say that, you know, it's just like any other industry. You have to have connections. You have to have a, a large element of luck. Uh, do you Do you think that that's still the case or... You know, do you think that, um, that that the sort of norms are shifting a little bit? No, I, I think people still believe in this mythos of meritocracy, and and it isn't like you said. It's it's a combination. It's not just pure luck, but it's definitely a combination of some skill, happenstance, and and and, and yeah, some human design. But there, there's a there's a massive focus on meritocracy. You, you can't find a Silicon Valley person who openly say that it's not meritocratic. And why is that? I mean, the reality is the stakes are so high. You can make so much money so quickly, right? I mean, my example was, was nothing, really, in the scheme of things. But somebody like uh, Kevin Systrom, for example, I mean, Instagram was for around for, what, a year or two? And he sold it for a billion? I think someone calculated he made about $700,000 a day when he was founding Instagram, right? And to think, and, and, and realistically, and I don't know Kevin or not, okay, I'm just using it as an example, but I, I doubt that someone like Kevin can actually look at himself in the mirror and say, well, you know, I, I just, you know, I'm a billion times better entrepreneur or encoder and designer than the other guy whose startup ended up nowhere, right? There's another, there was another one called uh, Hipstagram, which is basically Instagram that basically went nowhere. And, uh, you know, can he really say I'm a billion times better than that guy? No. But to maintain the sort of really s- status of extreme income and outcome inequality, um, y- you have to think that somehow you know, the moral universe conspired to make you a billionaire and the other guy not. And so I think it's this belief, you know. If meritocracy didn't exist, they'd, they'd need to invent it, and so they kind of have invented it as the as the the ethos of Silicon Valley. So, to what extent is sort of the the culture of Silicon Valley changing, as you just alluded to? I mean, I know the book sort of describes, you know, twenty three year olds out of college earning hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, sort of eating, you know, three meals a day at Facebook or right. wherever it may be. I mean, is that still the case? Or oh yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And, um, I mean, you've got that guy, right? He's a 23-year-old at Facebook who's living high in the hog. And then you've got a guy who's 23-year-old Y Combinator, for example, startup who's uh, founder who's paying himself nothing, as you know, is living in his office and, and living off of ramen. As I recount, Sam Altman, who's now the head of Y Combinator, he had his own startup, and he gave himself scurvy from eating too much ramen, right? Um, you realize how long you have to go without eating regular food to get scurvy, right? We're talking weeks and weeks and weeks. But those are the sort of like war stories that now are recounted right. with like, oh yes, he got scurvy. Yeah. He was he was right. coding so hard that he right. got scurvy, scurvy, and it's kind of like something to aspire to. Humble brag, yes, definitely. Yes. Do you think that like the fact that Silicon Valley, the HBO show, is so popular among Silicon Valley types, is it just like they nailed that dynamic so well? Yeah, I mean, I to be honest, I don't actually have a TV, so I, I've only watched pirated scenes on on YouTube. But um, <laughs> I, I do think the, the reason for its popularity is that it's very true. It gets many things right. It has a lot, they have a lot of consultants, and so they it's not your usual Hollywood take on on startups, which is like some kid staring into a screen and runs a single script and like takes down whatever, right? That sort of it. It actually is very realistic. I think one thing they they don't get right, and that I try to emphasize in my book, is the sort of darker side of what it's like. Like Silicon Valley is very goofy and funny and sitcom, and it's all great and upbeat. That's not really what the experience is like. 
um, you know, you're, you're risking your entire life, right? Because you're completely absorbed in the startup. And uh, the, the stakes are very high. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of endless toil. There's zero work-life balance. You sacrifice all your relationships. I saw my kids grow up through a Skype window, basically, when I was doing the startup. And I think that's the dark side. There's a lot of depression. There's a lot of drug use. I drank too much when I was doing the startup. And that's the sort of dark side that you don't see that I tried showing in my book. Yeah. Is is that something that you sort of experienced at Facebook? Because when did you join Facebook? Was it 2012? Tw- uh, 2011. 2011. Early, early 2011. Yeah. And you were there for two years. So I guess that was sort of around during the, the IPO. Exactly. That exactly bracketed. And I I saw that company transition from, you know, private, relatively pretty startup-y to public, relatively big company type thing right in that critical period, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, like, some of those... Those war stories that you recount in your in your book. I mean, for our listeners who I'm sure you know are, are going to click the Amazon you know link as soon as they as soon as they hear you. But what are some of those like the, the things that really stick in your mind in terms of like in the trenches at Facebook at that time? Well, on the startup side, as one example, I, I tell the anecdote: I brewed beer illegally on Facebook's campus. I'm, I'm a beer nerd, and I had a home brewing setup, but I was living on a boat, and you can't brew on a boat. So you know, obviously, what do you do? You bring your home brew setup to work, obviously, <laughs> and put it underneath your desk. And then on one of the so-called hackathons, which is when engineers would work on random projects, that some of them became real products. You know, I was a useless product manager. I wasn't actually actively coding. I was just leading a product team. Um, I decided to brew beer on campus. And, you know, if you brew beer, you have to boil it and you have to cool it. So you have to run a lot of water. And I blew up the plumbing, basically, on the second floor of the main building. And it started raining on Cheryl's and Zuck's desk. And just to give you an idea of how completely weird the culture was, nothing happened. Everyone's like, eh, whatever. They, the guards threw a plastic sheet over the desk, over Zuck's laptop that he just had tossed there and leaves there overnight. And that was the end of that. And so you can get away with that sort of thing. So that's, that's one anecdote of, uh, you know, on the other hand, there's other anecdotes that are less funny, um, the politics of, of, of Cheryl. Um, there's the, uh, have you read the book? There's that anecdote about the Cheryl cat filter thing. Uh, it's kind of a long one, but... Um, uh, in this case, I, I was part of a team that actually filtered ads. So one of, the reason why Facebook has so little pornography and general crap, right, is because there's actually operational teams that are very involved in actually filtering on stuff. You know, we occasionally complain because they get it wrong and they pull uh, a breastfeeding mother or something. But by and large, they got it very right. And considering that they have billions of photos a day, they actually do a very good job of it. So um, in, in one of these scenes, they were presenting uh, to Cheryl one of these filters and, um, you know, it's basically a porn filter, right? But you can't demo the porn filter like in the middle of a serious business with Cheryl. And so the engineers had replaced the porny photos with kittens, right? Like little cute little kittens. I think I can see where <laughs> this one <laughs> Right, right. Well, no, no. Well, well, but no one saw it there. Give, give you an idea of how chaste the corporate environment was, at least around Cheryl. Um, you know, finally Cheryl asks, all right, yeah, I get it. But like, what, what's with the kittens? And the PM looks at it like, it's the first time you'd seen it. I'm like, well, you know Cheryl, because like kittens, because like, yeah, and then Cheryl just explodes and says, "If there was a woman in that team, they'd never use that. I think you should change the kittens." And uh, everyone had to like sort of bite their nails and like you know bite their lips to shut up because like this utter PM stupidity of like. Well, I mean, like, I think that that part of the book. I mean, frankly, part of the criticism of the book was that you know you 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 did sort of depict a misogynist environment, <laughs> and that's obviously something that that Cheryl Sandberg has made you know a a, a big part of her. You know, charge at the company and, and in the broader right. workplace. Like, right. what what was your I, keeping in mind that we're like three dudes talking about this issue in a in a podcast booth? But yeah. like, what uh, did you see over your time at Facebook that that sort of culture of misogyny and and did you see that that change? And I guess do you, do you think that elements of your book that the criticism was fair that you know you kind of painted that right? So well, so there's two things there. One is is my book misogynist, right? And the other is. W- 
is there misogyny in Facebook? So, you know, beyond that one story, I never actually saw anything like overt sexism on Facebook. But of course, that's like asking a white guy whether he detects racism, right? Like I wouldn't necessarily have been someone who would have seen it, but certainly overtly no. And Facebook, you're right, Cheryl made it such that any, any sort of overt sexism like that would be instantly shut down. In terms of the other charges around misogyny in the book, you know, I represented Silicon Valley as it is, not as we'd like it necessarily to be, right? And I think a lot of the criticisms about the book, just broadly, not just misogyny, uh, they don't dislike me or the book. They just dislike Silicon Valley. <laughs> They've just never seen an honest portrait of what it actually is. Because, of course, part of the reason why I wrote the book, you know, the image that most people have Silicon Valley, if they have one at all, is the one that sort of greets you from the glossy cover of, like, Fortune magazine with, like, Drew Houston staring out or Zuck or whatever. And it's this very clean thing where, you know, steely-eyed visionaries with perfect execution go to market and everything's an instant success and everything's wonderful. And that's not the way it works at all, right? Yeah. Well, I think Theranos has probably <laughs> disavowed right. some people with, of that notion. There, yeah. But, but even successful companies, and Facebook is very successful. I'm actually very pro-Facebook in much of the book, you know shipped a lot of crappy products and makes really big, stupid mistakes. <laughs> well, we're going to talk yeah. about some of those, yeah. those uh, business decisions. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. I'm Veronica Dagger. Do you want to know how the rich invest, spend, and protect their money? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. All right, we're back with Antonio. So we were just talking about you know, some of the, the decisions that Facebook made. You were running FBX, yeah. uh, the ad exchange of Facebook. You, you document this in the book, but Facebook has decided to take a different tack with their ad strategy. Yeah. Um, can you describe sort of what, what you were doing and then what, they, what the transition that they, they made yeah. was and ultimately your exit? L- let me sex up the story a little bit because it's – uh, um, um, Well, maybe just start by sort of giving us a brief right. overview of sort of the what exchange program? model right. exactly. versus exactly. The, the ad exactly. network model. Exactly. That, right. yeah. So this is one of the biggest – it, it, one of the bigger stories in media today, right, which will impact Wall Street Journal, every, everything online at some point. You know, think for a moment of, you know, your typical stock exchange, those guys in jackets yelling at each other, right? I think most people who are relatively sophisticated know that these days most of stock volume actually goes to the computers talking to each other. When you go to the exchange, I've been to the exchange to interview for this. The exchange exists as a backdrop for CNBC. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all it is, right? No actual financial volume goes through it at all. So that same transition is actually happening in media right now. Uh, media used to be traded with literally faxes and steak dinners and phone calls and a very manual, old-school Wall Street type thing. And circa 2008, 2009, it started being something that was traded like stocks are on exchanges. And that's, that's the process that we're watching right now. What I built at Facebook was Facebook's venture into this new technical wave. Um, and whether you realize it, whether your listeners realize it or not, every time they open an app, every time they load a website, there's literally hundreds of what are called bid requests that go out with their unique ID – and go out to advertisers. They mine all the data they know about you, even stuff that you've done offline, potentially bought in physical stores, and then submit a, an ad and, 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 a, and a piece of ad creative and a bid for your attention. And this happens hundreds of billions of times a day. That's what I mean by programmatic. It is literally the real-time market and individual quantum of human attention that's happening billions of times a day. That's what it is. And that's what I built at Facebook, basically. I didn't invent it. I mean, Google was really the one who pioneered it. Actually, DoubleClick, which Google bought, um, is who pioneered it. But this was Google, Facebook's first venture into that. And yeah. 
Sure. So, so that system, I guess, sort of essentially relies on third-party companies sort of reselling ad space within Facebook, right. which you were a proponent of. Um, and I guess Facebook has sort of gone in another direction and sort right. of said, hey, you know, we can just sell to advertisers direct. We, we don't need those middlemen. Um, so I guess why, why would you say that that was a good strategy? Because, I mean, in the years that have followed, I mean, Facebook has obviously had a great deal of success with its ad network and, you know, Revenue has gone through the roof and the stock price has gone through the roof. Right. Yeah, I'm sure that's how Facebook thinks about it, but not for the reasons that you might think. I mean, um, the reason why Facebook didn't decide to go that way and the, and the way Google – I just it's funny because I just was speaking of Google. Google thinks about the world very differently. Google tries to create an open market with an open exchange in which there's several p- parts of this puzzle, right? And Google – there's a Google version of everything in the ad tech sort of landscape, right? Um, but you can pick and choose and not go with Google. If you want, then you can still buy Google inventory. Um, the way Facebook sees it is no. If you buy anything on Facebook, you have to use our ad server, our tracking, our everything. One way to think about it is imagine a financial system in which you had a bank that also supplied your debit cards, your investment instruments, your mortgage, did everything or nothing. There is no way to actually pick and choose financial services as you do today. Right? So uh, you know, Facebook is a bit of a monopolist in that sense. In terms of how, why they've done well, I get into this at the end of the book. And um, it's, 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 again, typical Silicon Valley story, partially accidental partially actually not accident so what happened soon after i left facebook there was a massive debate about the open versus closed debate that roiled facebook for a year which i recount in the book how did facebook save itself had nothing to do with that choice whatsoever in fact it would have happened either way what happened is facebook went com- almost completely mobile right but after i left facebook usage crossed 50 percent and then just went up from there and right now i think mo- publicly they announced it's something like 85 percent of of use is mobile that may not sound that exciting but you know, there's a saying in advertising, money follows eyeballs even if slowly, right? And there's so much so much eyeballs spent on the internet, but somehow the, the mass amounts of cash that's being spent on TV or mail hasn't quite gotten there. In the case of Facebook, and this is where the skill comes in, this is where the non-accident happened, they pivoted from a mostly desktop company selling, you know, little likes and a little bit of retargeting, whatever, to a totally mobile-centric company in basically a quarter or two, which is an amazing pivot and absolutely a credit to them, and I give them all the credit in the world in the book. But that's what saved them, that they managed – there was massive mobile usage. They managed to actually get mobile budgets, and that mobile inventory, for various reasons, just does a lot better than other mobile inventory, something that, frankly, wasn't quite clear in 2013. So how did that happen so quickly? Because I remember sort of the, the narrative in the media was, you know, is Facebook going to figure out mobile? Like, this was around the IPO. It was sort of presented as sort of a big threat to, to Facebook's business. And then, to your point, it just sort of suddenly yeah. sort of, you know flipped a switch and, and things were good again. Yeah, I mean, I think F- Facebook succeeded on mobile for a couple of reasons. Um, one, Facebook's data on desktop actually isn't that exciting, right? Like, knowing that you liked BMW a year ago doesn't mean you're actually about to buy a car, right? We did a study at Facebook that showed the fraction of likes that Burberry, for example, had. A huge fraction are from countries whose GDP per capita is less than the price of a Burberry jacket. <laughs> Those people are never going to buy Burberry ever in the history of the world, right? So compared to know, knowing someone who literally went online and actually looked at a Burberry jacket on an e-commerce store, that, that data is very is basically valueless. It has some value, but not a lot. On mobile, different story. The, the mobile data marketplace, for various reasons, is fractured, and, and most targeting data is, is crappy if it exists at all. And so Facebook was sort of the one-eyed man in the land of the blind in that regard. The second one, which is also important, is the placement. By that, I mean like the ad itself is very compelling. If you consider 
you know, the, the click-through rates on Facebook newsfeed, which is like one of the top-line metrics, is, you know, low single-digit percentages, which is huge. That's, that's very high for an ad. The fact that, you know, three out of every hundred ads actually gets clicked on, that, that's a very large number. And why is that? The units themselves are, are relatively engaging. It's next to, you know, a photo of your nephew having a birthday party. You're supremely engaged versus, let's face it, the crappy ads you otherwise see on mobile apps, right, which is this pop-up that you're basically trying to ignore. And so mobile's ad product as a product was just way better than the alternative, so it can actually draw a lot of mobile budgets very quickly. When you were uh, at, at Facebook, you talk about in the book the sort of war between Facebook and Google, yeah. a war that's still going on today. Yeah. Um, what was it like to be in the trenches there? Uh, is there? Were there particular moments or stories where it really felt like you were in this like this this battle in the middle of it. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's one scene that got excerpted in Vanity Fair, and there's a whole chapter on when uh, Google Plus launched. And if your listeners need reminding, Google Plus was a social network that Google launched that went nowhere. They might need it. reminding. Yeah, they might need <laughs> reminding <laughs> that only Googlers ever used, basically. Um, although it was actually, you know, objectively a relatively good product. And this was going to be their Facebook killer. Right, exactly. And this was... And then the, the feeling inside Facebook was like, this was like our great enemy Sally into our hemisphere. Like, I compare it to like... Kennedy, when the Soviets put nukes on Cuba, it's like, what the hell? How, how, how is it that we suddenly have Google like breathing down our necks? And so it's fair to say they took it seriously. Oh, oh, it's the only time that I've seen the company kind of fearful, yeah, or seen Zuck a little bit paranoid. And it's funny because like for us in the press, all these companies are very good at putting on a really icy yeah, yeah, facade. Yeah. And, and you know, you don't necessarily know or, or you have to hear from your sources, obviously, of, like, what's what's going on internally. You, but this was, like, a really big Yeah, yeah. The, the scene, I mean, Zuck called one of these all-hands meetings, which he does occasionally. And we all gathered around what's called the aquarium, which is his conference room because it looks like a, a fish aquarium. And he gave this speech, kind of a rambling speech, kind of boring. But in the middle of it, uh, you know, I think he has a classics education. He cited um, – uh, Cato the Elder, who used to rail against the Carthaginians before the Punic Wars, that, you know, Carthage must be destroyed, right? And it just it just rallied everybody. We went out there with, with a cheer, and he called what was called a lockdown, which back in the day, it meant he, like, literally locked everyone inside Facebook. Obviously, these days, he couldn't do that. But he basically strongly encouraged everyone to be there every day and, and trying to produce the best Facebook possible. There's meals served on weekends, et cetera. And then me, I, I haven't seen the movie, in which I was going into work on a Sunday morning, and I decided to stay on the 101 highway, which threads through Silicon Valley for a couple more stops. I got off of Google. And, you know, just to compare what's our, what's our competition doing, and the parking lots were empty. I drove back to Facebook, and I had to struggle to find a parking spot on a Sunday morning, right? And so that was the feeling that inside Facebook. Of course, the question people have asked is like, well, but did Facebook really need to do that? No, Google Plus basically died by suicide. It, you know, eventually did not actually get any real traction. But uh, in some sense, it's not the point, right? A lot of these corporate, um, you know, gestures are really team-building gestures to sort of, you know, rally the faithful more than actually – of defeated Google Plus necessarily. So Steve just alluded to this, and I think you did earlier. Like A lot of Silicon Valley companies, Google and Facebook included, do a very good job of sort of portraying that they have everything under control at all points. You know, they come up with an idea, right. they sort of execute, and then they ship it. Um, yeah, I mean, like I, I say towards the end of the book, right, this is how Silicon Valley works, right? You come up with 10 ideas, right? You, you ship them. Seven of them, to- seven of them totally suck and completely fail. Two of them sort of work for the reasons you kind of thought they would. And then one goes absolutely gangbusters great for reasons that only make sense in retrospect and, and really you didn't know. And, that, and that's, that's basically how it works. And the, the best thing a company can do is actually still have, in some sense, the nerve to actually take those big risks even when it's big, which Facebook absolutely does. One of its mottos on the posters, the sort of Orwellian posters on the wall, um, was move fast and break things, which was you know, kind of its motto. And it, would, and it would do that all the time. It's, in my opinion, that's one of the problems that Twitter has. It doesn't actually ship a lot of new products, right? I mean, think of the last new feature that Twitter shipped. 
Yeah, so you – so right. what, what is your relationship or was your relationship to Twitter? Because you sold your <laughs> – sort of an acquire, right? Yeah. Um, you sold your, your startup yeah. and I think I, you're, you were an advisor. So what, what, is, what was that relationship like? Yeah, so that – I mean I don't want to give too many spoilers in the book. But the weird thing was that, yeah, I sold the company to Twitter. But as often happens in Silicon Valley, by the way. And again, this happens all the time. Just nobody talks about it because there's a code of silence. Facebook made a bid on me but not the rest of the company and said, you guys just figure it out. Companies do this all the time. They, they, they force co-founder issues and all this stuff all the time. Um, I decided not to go with AgRock. So strictly speaking, here's another interesting thing. The company only existed for 10 months, right? And founders themselves are on what's called a vesting schedule, meaning I didn't actually get my shares for another year. And so upon walking out of that deal, I literally made nothing off the AgRock side of things, like zero. And so, of course, Facebook kind of replicated the economics on their side, which is kind of why I did the deal. Then I went to Facebook. Had nothing to do with Twitter. Was never a Twitter employee at the time. Then when I left Facebook... um, Twitter acquired a company called Mopub, which is probably its biggest acquisition ever, right? I'm $350 million plus dollars, right. um, for uh, a mobile ad exchange. And they were clearly trying to do exactly what I was trying to do, which was merge this social media giant to the programmatic world, right? And obviously, for whatever reason, I was the one guy in the world who had done that, right? And knew every legal and business issue they had to face. And despite the fact that I had basically told them to, you know, to bug, you know, bugger off with the deal, the same people that I literally walked out of a meeting and said, oh, why don't you stick around for a while? And so I became an advisor, which all that really means is they pay you a little bit of equity, and then you have meetings with their product managers, and you discuss product, and that, that's it, basically. So how do, how do you think, I mean, having been sort of within Facebook and had visibility, visibility into Twitter, I mean, how, how do the cultures of those companies compare? Yeah, I mean, you know, Twitter, sure, I was an insider and form of an advisor, but I wasn't a full-time employee, so right. my knowledge is a little more spotty. Sure. Um, I think Facebook... Facebook has lots of good things going for it. I don't want to be too negative. The engineering culture is amazing. The engineering quality is amazing. Um, just to give you an idea, the, the version of fa- Facebook ships th- three times a day of new versions of Facebook. So the version of Facebook you're looking when you're, is maybe a few hours old. In case it doesn't sound like much, your average super sharp, super amazing startup ships code maybe once a month or once every two weeks. And this is a quarter of the internet getting rebooted three times a day, basically because they can Right. And so the, it's definitely an engineering first culture in which that works very well. Frankly, product managers and engineers are the people who actually run that company and, and decide what's get built. And nobody else basically matters. Right. Which I think is very typical and similar to Google as well. Um, again, they, 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 they're willing to take risks. They're willing to ship occasionally crappy products for the sake of innovation and, and rolling the dice. Um, and again, there is a strong founder leadership there in the form of Zuckerberg, who's like obviously guiding the ship. Twitter lacks almost all of those things, right? Um, you know, its engineering was shaky from the start. The famous fail whale, right, that took years to go away. Um, the, they don't take risks. Again, think of the last Twitter feature that they, they shipped. I mean, I can't think of one moment, maybe. That's it. And then they don't actually have that level of leadership. They're trying to get it with Jack Dorsey and stuff. Right. But I don't think it's quite the same as, as it is with Zuck. Um, so I think in that sense, those companies are very different. And, and by the way, this was apparent even when I was doing the deal. I mean, there's a reason why I bailed on the Twitter side of the deal at the time. It just seemed like Facebook was just much stronger than, than Twitter. So. How do you view flipping back to Facebook? I mean, this is something we talk about a lot on the podcast is sort of Facebook's relationship with the media industry. Obviously, you know, media companies and online publishers sort of rely on Facebook more than ever for distribution and arguably for monetization now as right. well. Right. Um, so how do you view that? Um, I mean, are publishers sort of fooling themselves that they still have some sort of leverage against Facebook or I, yeah I think so I mean they're working with Facebook is a real devil's bargain on the one hand you get massive distribution right um, they have their new articles product that's basically hosted by Facebook right they don't even host the content anymore right they just produce it um, on the other hand you're completely locked in with Facebook and it's Facebook is a company that doesn't really 
doesn't it looks at the world and it sees adversaries. It doesn't really see partners or friends, right? There's even never, the companies that it works with. And... Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, wor- I've worked. I was the VP of product for their biggest ad partner, which was responsible for like five percent of their revenue. A company called Nanigans. And um, yeah, they they would screw Nanigans any chance they could, right? And and yeah, and they will at some point probably. Um, yeah, that's just the way Facebook views the world. It's a, it's a very insular. It's very bunker like. It's very paranoid. Um, and so I think that same attitude probably holds with publishers. Now, I don't think Facebook's ever going to produce content, right? I mean, we saw the fiasco it had with the trending topic thing when it hired journalists to actually vet the trending topics because the product was so terrible that it needed human oversight. And we saw what a fiasco that turned into. And I think it's really not part of the company's DNA. So I don't think the Wall Street Journal needs to worry that Facebook's going to compete directly with I them. think that for a long time that was the fear that there was going to be some Facebook news outlet or newsroom really? that was going to eat the media. But now it's like yeah, so. the, the fear isn't that. The, the fear is what's going on now is that you're going to need to enti- you know rely entirely on Facebook as a distribution or Snapchat or Right. You know, Google, um, and that's a real fear that that media companies have. So it's, it's a legitimate one. Do you think it's you think it's justified? I think so. Yeah, yeah. And it makes the distribution dynamics kind of screwy, right? Because we're living in these social media echo chambers of our own creation, right? And so I, I assume the readership of Wall Street Journal is like tightly interlinked among a certain you know circle of readers, and just doesn't get outside that necessarily, right? Um, it's not like putting a newspaper on a newsstand and everyone kind of sees it. Not only a subset actually will see it. So what are you um, what are you up to now? I mean, Michael Lewis parlayed Liar's Poker into a journalism <laughs> career. Are we going to be competing yeah. with you in like a year's time or what? You know, it's funny. Michael, it took Michael Lewis 13 years to publish another big book actually. Um, so the clock isn't quite ticking. All right. So yet. we'll <laughs> we'll set our clocks for 13 years and we'll have you back on the podcast uh, you know, in, in 13 years' time. But Antonio, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next time on the WSJ Media Mix Podcast. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.